we're going to be in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. As a church, we've been walking through the story of the whole story of Scripture, just kind of covering all the major phases of redemptive history. And um, we've seen that God created all things good, and He created all things, um, and He created mankind as the centerpiece of creation, and he, He sent them to go and extend His dominion throughout all creation. And he, he prepared them as his image over all things, and he gave them a covenant that he would not abandon them or desert them. And we've seen that time and time again throughout Scripture that mankind has broken the covenant, that mankind has, has, um, has lost the kingdom, and that mankind has done its, its best to sin itself away from the love of the Lord. And yet God and his, his fierce and radical love for his people has been faithful to reestablish his covenant. He's been faithful to rebuild his kingdom, and he's been faithful to save a, a seed, a remnant, um, that would bring about salvation for all peoples. And so uh, we get to the, the time of the, at the end of the Old Testament, and there's about 400 years of silence. Thanks again, Parker. Uh, there's about 400 years of silence, and uh, nobody uh, has heard a prophecy from the Lord up until this time. Nobody's written any scripture, and it seems like maybe God has forgotten his people. And, and then we we get this cluster of events that culminates with the birth of Christ. And we're just going to read one portion of, of that events from Luke chapter 2 this morning, and then we'll get into it. Luke chapter 2, verses 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's his parents bringing Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a, uh, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, have one more time we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to know um, your son more deeply, maybe for some of us for the first time this morning. Father, would you impress upon us the importance of his story and how we can join in it. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. It had been 400 years since the people of Israel had heard from the Lord. 400 years. It was, it was like a movie that had seemed like it was reaching close to the apex, and then it was cut off for lack of funding. Some of you know that reference. And um, 
it seemed like this this movie that was ending towards its climax was suddenly cut off and it was suddenly done away with that this uh, that the story just seemed unresolved and there had been a long intermission 400 years and empires had come and gone and kingdoms had risen and fallen and kings had taken the the crown and the throne for themselves and they themselves had fallen apart and it seemed like political concerns daily concerns had taken the place of the hope of Israel. It seemed like Israel had lost sight of, of what the Lord had promised. It seemed like the promises of God, the expectation that had been given to the people of Israel, had been allowed to fall into dust and rust. Until one day Simeon was walking through the temple in the Spirit, and he sees this child, and something just tells him, that's him. That's the Lord's Christ. That's the Messiah. That's the light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people Israel. How did Simeon still have hope? Why did he believe that this story needed a resolution? Why was this story so important to him and why should it be so important to us? That's the question that we're going to answer this morning is what role does this child play in the story of Scripture? And to, to answer that, I, I'm going to give you eight events from the life of Christ. Eight events from the life of Christ. And I'm going to list them now because you guys know I'm just going to keep going and forget to tell you where I'm at. So eight events and then only one application this morning. Only, I know, one application with three sub-applications. <laughs> All right. Eight, here are the eight events from the life of Christ. His birth, his baptism, his temptation his teaching and preaching ministry, his transfiguration, his passion, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his teaching and preaching ministry, his transfiguration, his passion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Eight events from the life of Christ that will help us understand the importance that this child Jesus uh, plays in the, the story of Israel. Well, Jesus, Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem of Judea. And for those of you who've been with us throughout the series that we've been in, um, you know that that is the city that King David was born in. Uh, Bethlehem in Judea is where J- Jesus, the Christ, was, bo- uh, was born. It's also where one of Jesus' late ancestors, King David, had been born all those years ago, to whom God had uh, promised the the. Uh, the kingdom to, that there would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would never fade. It was to this David, of course, that David had broken the covenant that God had made with him, and yet God continued to give him his covenant, regardless of David's ability to uphold it. And God promised that he was going to preserve the seed, he's going to preserve the offspring, the remnant of the line of David, a a branch of Jesse, to come and to be able to establish the, the kingdom. And so we see that this child was born of David in the city of David, and to him the promises of the kingdom of David are given. And from the east, there's this mysterious group of people, the three magi who come, and there's all this mystery everyone likes to, to, to speculate about who they are. And I'm just going to spoil it for you. They're mid-level bureaucrats from, from the Persian kingdom. Sorry, I know that there's all this allure about them. 
they're mid-level bureaucrats from the kingdom of Persia, uh, which had a huge population of Jewish people who had refused to come back from exile. Maybe you'll remember. But these people were familiar with the Jewish scriptures, and they, they knew astronomy really well, and they knew that there was a star that rose that was pro- prophesied to rise over the city of David. And so they came seeking the Messiah. And they come with these gifts. These gifts are meant to anoint him and prepare him for his death. And meanwhile, as this is going on, there's angels that are singing and appearing to shepherds in fields. And people are wondering, what is, what is going on? And then this, this time in Bethlehem is cut short because Herod, the king of Judea at the time, even though he's not, uh, he's not of the line of David, the king Herod, um, hears that there's this child because the Magi have come. And so Herod sends his, his henchmen to go and slaughter all the, the children from the children who are two years or younger. And uh, this is an interesting part of the story. If, you're, if you ever have wonders, um, is the Bible historically accurate? Um, this Herod is exactly who the, the, Herod, uh, the Herod that history tells us he is. In fact, one of the Roman Caesars said, it's better to be a pig in Herod's sty than to be one of his own children because he was that bloodthirsty. And so Herod sends soldiers to go and slaughter all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two. And so Jesus, with his father Joseph, retreats to the land of Egypt. He goes to Egypt, just like Abraham's family had done all those years ago. He goes down to Egypt so that it could be said of him, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so after Herod dies, um, Jesus' family goes back up to Galilee goes up to Nazareth, and from what we know, Jesus lived a fairly normal life for most of his life, and when he was about 30 years old, um, he comes to, he's kind of has disappeared, and he, he makes another appearance. His, his cousin, John the Baptist, who um, was probably that relative at Thanksgiving that, you know, everyone just struggled to talk to. He wore, wore camel's vest, and he had a, he had a weird belt, and he ate locusts, and honey, and, but he had a real following. I mean, John the Baptist was well-regarded. Uh, even secular literature that we have tells us about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist um, was baptizing people and preaching, uh, uh, preaching that the kingdom of God was near, and Jesus comes to him, and, and Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and uh, the, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, Jesus crosses over the water through the River Jordan, just like the people of Israel all those years ago crossed through the Red Sea and over the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. And he receives the Spirit and the Father's approval. And he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, just like Israel had been in the wilderness for 40 years. And systematically, he rejects Satan's temptations one by one. And these temptations that Satan had devised for for Christ were specifically uh, oriented towards the the curses that were upon any kings who would break them in in the book of Deuteronomy. Whereas all the other kings in Israel's history and Israel's past had broken the the covenant and they had broken the law and they had let God's people down and and they had brought the curse of, of Deuteronomy upon them, Jesus himself passed the test. Unlike Israel, he survived through the wilderness, and unlike Israel's kings, he he passed the test. And after this time he went into to 
preach and to teach the gospel. And, and his teaching and preaching ministry is maybe what many of us think of when we think of the life of Christ. And we've been preaching through the gospel of John over the last year, and we'll continue to preach that in the new year. And so we, we're pretty familiar in this church with the teaching and the preaching ministry of Jesus, but there's all these connections to the teaching and the preaching that Jesus did uh, to the Old Testament. So just like Moses gave the law of God on the mountain, so Jesus gives the law of God from the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just like Moses gathered the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, so Jesus appointed for himself 12 disciples. Uh, Jesus teaches them the law like Moses. And Jesus teaches them a law, by the way, that demands perfection. In the, in the book of Matthew, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That there's this perfect obedience that's being demanded from the people of Israel. And it, 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 seems, like, it seems like he's just doing the same thing that Moses did, giving them this law that they'll never be able to uphold and then they'll never be able to keep. And, and therefore, the people of Israel are just continuing the cycle. But Jesus prefaces this sermon. Some people have said the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, by saying this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches them, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a way to read that and say, Jesus is demanding perfection of me. He's saying that my righteousness must be better even than the Pharisees, that I must be able to keep the law in all of its perfections. And that is absolutely true. But Jesus himself promises, I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to accomplish the righteousness which is necessary for you to enter into the kingdom. That It's up to me, not up to you. And even the miracles of Jesus, we're, we're told in the book of Matthew, are, are meant to prefigure the fact that he will heal us from our sins, that he will come and like the, the, like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that he's going to come and he's going to take our, our sin sickness onto himself. Jesus even tells us that the ministry of, of, of Jonah and the ministry of uh, of Solomon is fulfilled in himself. Jesus says this in Matthew 12. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, have re- for they repented at the, te- at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, here's a perfect law. If you don't keep it, then you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nevertheless, I'm going to keep it for you. And by the way, I'm the greater Jonah, and I'm the greater Solomon, and I'm, I'm the only, uh, I'm what this has all been pointing to this whole time, that I am the apex of the story. And when you read through the four Gospels, it, it's unmistakable the confidence that Jesus speaks about these things with. 
Jesus isn't speculating. He's not hypothesizing. He's not in a philosophical discussion like Socrates. He's speaking with confidence. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus knows what his destiny is. He knows what his job is. He knows what his purpose is. He knows who his people are, and he will save them from their sins. Well, close to the end of his preaching and teaching ministry, Jesus takes four of his disciples up onto a mountain, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And while he's shining, while he's there, his clothes begin to shine like white. And that is an unmistakable reference to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We talked about that last week, how Daniel had been given this vision of the Son of Man who comes to the one who's seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and his, his face is, uh, his clothes are shining like white lightning. And Jesus says, you'll, you'll know that I'm the Son of Man. He ties this directly to his death and his resurrection. So while Peter is up there and he's thinking, oh, there's Moses and Elijah next to Jesus. That's pretty cool. Jesus is saying, I'm the point. I'm the one. Not, don't care about Moses and Elijah that are here. Look at me. That I'm, I'm the center of the story. And of course, it's not long after this that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem on, on a colt, riding on a colt to fulfill the prophecy made in the book of Zechariah. And the crowds are cheering and they're going crazy. And the, the Pharisees tell Jesus, would you tell your disciples to knock it off? And Jesus says, if I told them to knock it off, the rocks would cry out. That Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the, the messianic king, like, like David came back from, from when he had fled from Jerusalem, when his son Absalom had chased him. So Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. And he celebrates Passover the night before their deliverance, much like Israel had in Egypt all those years ago. And after Passover, he goes with his disciples into the garden, and late that night he's arrested, and he is tried unfairly by the, the establishment. He's found to be guilty, and they release a man named Barabbas, a, a thief, and they take Jesus, and they, and they prepare to crucify him. And just a, another historically interesting note, Barabbas is one of the most interesting characters in, in the four Gospels. He's mentioned five different times in the New Testament. It's very unlikely that Barabbas would have been um, mentioned that many times if people didn't know Barabbas in the time of the New Testament. It's one of the ways that we know the story of Jesus is historically reliable. But Jesus himself is, is arrested, and he's being prepared for his crucifixion. He's being beaten by Roman guards, and he's uh, be having this, this robe mockingly pressed onto his wounds, and, and, and he has a crown of thorns pressed upon his head as if to say, you think you're going to reign. And they lead him out into, out of the city to carrying his own cross. And he is so beaten and so broken that he can't even carry his own cross physically. And so they, they grab a man named Simon of Cyrene. Again, another interesting historical note. It's unlikely the New Testament would have referenced Simon of Cyrene if people didn't know Simon of Cyrene. He's a historically verifiable person. This actually happened. And Jesus lifted up on the cross, and he suffers, and he cries out to Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at last, he says, It is finished, and he draws his last breath. And the sky goes dark, and the earth shakes. 
and the shroud and the temple splits. And by his wounds, we are healed. As the snake was lifted up in the wilderness when the children of Israel were rebellious, that took the sicknesses of the people of Israel upon itself, so Christ was lifted up on the cross and took our sins upon himself. Just as, just as the, the goat would be, have the curses of the covenant put upon it once a year in the temple, so, so the scapegoat and the scapegoat would be released, so Christ went into a far country bearing our sins. Just as the, the blood of the atonement would, would be sprinkled on the holy places to make them pure for one more year, so the presence of God could dwell amongst the people of Israel. So the blood of Christ is sprinkled on our hearts and in heaven before the face of God. And God himself is pleased when his son is crushed. And then three days later, as the children of Israel are preparing to grieve, as the disciples the 12 apostles who are supposed to parallel the 12 tribes of Israel are preparing themselves to, to weep and to grieve for the loss of their master. They begin to get these reports that his tomb is empty. And then Mary Magdalene gets this vision of the Messiah. And if you were going to have this vision of Christ come back from the dead, what would you think it would be? A king on a white horse, a conquering hero, he comes back as a gardener. Why does he come back as a gardener? And to spoil it a little bit, because we'll talk about this at Easter this coming spring, he comes back as a gardener because he's beginning the, the new creation, because he is making all things new. And so just as the garden, just as Adam and Eve were put into the garden to expand the dominion of God over the face of the earth, so Christ comes back from the dead to expand the kingdom of God, the garden of Eden, to make all things new, to bring heaven down to earth, to begin recreation. And then he goes up to heaven. And the fact that he ascends to heaven should not be underestimated. Because just as Daniel saw the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne and the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man coming to him, so Jesus himself enters into the throne room of heaven where, where the, the angels are singing from generation to generation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory and the land that is standing as though it had been slain enters into the throne room and takes its place beside the one on the throne. And the angels say to him, worthy are you for you have purchased a people for God, from every tribe and tongue and nation. The fact that he ascends into heaven is not him going into retirement. It's him finishing the job that he's begun. 
where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and initiates his kingdom, and his kingdom will never end. The ascension is the beginning of Jesus' present ministry for us, where he sends his spirit to us to give us new life and to prepare the to prepare the earth for his return in glory. This is when Jesus establishes his kingdom that that will never end because he will never die again. This is when the seed of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Rahab, and Tamar, and all the rest comes to sit on the throne that's been promised. This is when the one who's established the new covenant ascends to plead our cause before the right hand of God the Father. To give us the blessings of the new covenant. And and maybe you'd say, well, aren't we going to break the new covenant just like mankind has broken the covenant at every other turn possible? Absolutely. That's why he already bore your curse. He's already paid the punishment. He's already, he, he, he's already taken our shame upon himself. In a place of that, he's given us his perfect righteousness, the righteousness without which none of us will enter the kingdom of heaven, the holiness without which no one will see the face of God. He's already borne our curse, taken our story upon himself, and given us his story. In Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Because he has already borne our curse and given us his righteousness and so made us eligible to receive all the blessings of the new covenant. He's died once to die no more. And he's established the kingdom that will never end. And he has saved a people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. So here's the one application for this sermon. Of course, three sub-applications. Here's the one application. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point of the story. He's the point of the story of the Bible. He's the point of every story, and he's the point of our stories. He is the better Moses, the better Joshua, the better Solomon, the better Israel. Jesus is the better sacrifice, the better Passover lamb. He brings a better covenant. Can you see that for thousands of years, God was laying down the the framework, laying down the blueprint, laying down the foundation so that he could build on it in Christ? Can you see that Jesus is, is the one towards which every story in the Old Testament is tending and ending and it finds its culmination in the person of Christ? He is the climax. He's the point of this story. He's the the point of of every story in the Old Testament is pointing forwards to him. It can't be understood before him. Now that Christ has died and rose again, we can't go back and read those as if they're unrelated to him. He is the point of that story and of every story. I love the the story of two friends in in England in in the middle of the last century named uh, Clive and John. And Clive was an atheist, and he was kind of philosophical, but he had this his, this friend named John who, who loved the Lord. And they would get talking, and they would start talking about all these old legends, and they were super nerdy, and, and I think John's wife tolerated it because that meant that he didn't have to talk to her about it all. And they would read each other these stories, and they, they would talk about all these ancient legends and all these ancient tales. 
And John used that as a, to try to share the gospel with his friend Clive, and Clive was so resistant. He had come to his mind. He knew what he believed. But they just kept telling all these stories, and they kept figuring out that all these stories had all these common points and that they were all related and that they all seemed to fit. And, and John said, you know, you know, Clive, what this all points to? This all points to the fact that there must be a true story, a true story underneath it all. That all of these false stories are meant to point us to the one true reality. It's out of that emergence that that C.S. Lewis came to know the Lord. You can know more about you can know more about that in his um, in his autobiography. You can hear more about that in um, in his his book Surprised by Joy. And this is what J.R. Tolkien says. This is John summarizing what he says. This is printed in your bulletins. He says, It is not difficult to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy that one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found to be primarily true. It's narrative to be history without thereby necessarily losing the mythical or allegorical significance that it had possessed. It is not difficult, for one is not called upon to try and conceive of anything of a quality unknown. The, the joy would have exactly the same quality, if not the same degree, as the joy which the turn in a fairy story gives. Such joy is the very taste of primary truth. Otherwise, its name would not be joy. It looks forward or backward. The direction in this re- regard is unimportant. To the great, I love this, the great catastrophe. The Christian joy, the glory, is of the same kind, but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacity were not finite, high and joyous. But this story is supreme, and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. But in God's story, the presence of the great does not depress the small. Redeemed man is still Man, story, fantasy still go on and should go on. The Evangelium has not abrogated legends. It has hollowed them, especially the happy ending. The Christian has still to work with mind as well as body to suffer and hope and die, but he may now perceive that all his bents and faculty have a purpose which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated that he may now perhaps fairly dare to guess that in fantasy he may actually assist and the affoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet, at the last redeemed, there may be as like and as unlike the forms that we give them as man finally redeemed will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. Christian, this is the point of every story. There is no greater story than the story of Scripture. There is no greater beginning and, and crisis and building of tension and rising action and climax than the story that the Bible tells us. And all the episodes that we've seen building up to this point and all the thousands and thousands of verses and hundreds and hundreds of chapters that we've seen rising to this level, there is no greater story than the story of the Bible. There is no greater story than the story about Jesus. Jesus is the point of this story, and Jesus is the point of our stories too. 
Jesus is the point of our stories too. The story of Scripture is not the story of a God that doesn't exist and has no relevance for our lives today. The story of Scripture is the story that does exist and has relevance for us every day. It's not only the story of of Christ who lived thousands of years ago, but it's the story of Christ who lives now and reigns now and redeems now. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who I think invented math or something like that, (laughs) said, It is good for man to be tired and wearied by the vain search after the true good, that we may stretch out our arms to the Redeemer. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, can my story still be, can, can this still be my story? I've made so many mistakes in my past. I, I, there's, there's, been, there's been so many mistakes and regrets that I have. Can this story Bill, still be my story? And I would tell you the thief that was on the cross next to Christ, drawing the last breath that he can into his lungs would say, yes. The thief whom Jesus told, today you will be with me in paradise knows that this story can be your story too. If he could find redemption with only minutes to live, so you and I can be redeemed. Maybe you think, well, if I join his story, that means that I won't be the main character. And that's true. If Jesus is the point, you are not. But it's better to serve as an extra in his story that will be sung about for all eternity than to be the main character in your own story that is here today and gone tomorrow. The Apostle Paul would tell us this. After all, he, he spent much of his life trying to be the main character of his own story, trying to establish his own righteousness, trying to live according to the law in every way and shape and regard until he saw the resurrected Christ on on the road to Damascus one day. And he would say, I count it all loss. I count it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ my Lord. Yes, if this story becomes your story, it means that you are not the point. But that's okay. That's a better thing for you than the alternative. Maybe you wonder, can this story still give me hope? After everything that I've been through and everything that I've gone through and everything that I've suffered in this life, can this story still ring fresh and ring new? Can this you catastrophe still be good news for me? To which I think Simeon would say all these years ago, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. The story that you give to us. The way that you welcome us into your story. You take our story upon yourself. And you give us the story of your son. Father, we thank you that there is no story that compares with this story. We thank you that you give us the privilege of getting to be extras and getting to watch your son be the leading role. 
Father, we thank you that your your son is not merely an idea, but in him legend and history have met and fused. And Father, we pray for us that you would help us to live in light of this story. That we would grow more and more with each day to see that your son is indeed the point of this story and of every story and of our story. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.